today is 1 John 5, 13 through 21. I'll be reading from the NIV. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come <clears throat> and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. <clears throat> and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. My, especially those of you who are our are, are guests, we're grateful that you've joined us to worship this morning. My name is Mike Traben. I am one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. You might be noticing a trend. If your name is Mike or Michaela or Michelle, we, we may have an opening for you on the staff. But uh, very grateful that, um, for the opportunity to uh, be with you this morning. I spent the last week traveling for my, my other job. Um, my children, I have four children at home that range in ages from 12 down to a set of eight-year-old twins. They have sort of this shtick that comes up on Sundays that, um, Dad, are you going to talk for a really long time again today? Um, trying to cajole me into um, a much shorter sermon. I mean, they're only 15 minutes long. I don't know what they're complaining about. But, um, but last night, um, they threw in a new tactic. One of them drew a straw and vomited at you know, 9.30 p.m., so my family's not here this morning. But all that to say that um, I'm grateful to be here and, um, and to be able to bring to you um, God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, would you graciously give us a clarity of heart, as we just sang in the song, and, and mind to, to hear the truth of your Word, to see our deep need for the Son, as our Savior, and to submit to the leading of your Spirit to conform our will to your own. Amen. Well, this morning we are coming to the end of, of one primary segment of our sermon series that we've entitled Love Without Fear as we journey through the epistles of John. We come to the end of, of 1 John that we attribute to the Apostle John. And as we've seen over the past eight weeks that John's letter is cyclical and repetitive. He 
circles back to reemphasize a number of themes and, and main points. And these points have, have been preached over the past eight weeks by, by those who've brought the word to us. Well, as we come to the end of John's letter here, many see it just as, a, as an epilogue and a conclusion. It's a summary and a reinforcement of, of what John's already said. John is reinforcing what it is that God calls us to know and to do. And I've wrestled just with what is the message for this morning. How do we simply recover old ground? But, but what I've landed on is that there is something that John wants us to do with this knowledge. To do with this certainty that he's giving us. In verse 13 of our passage this morning, John gives the whole purpose for his letter. To assure those who trust in Christ that they have eternal life. And as we've heard in previous weeks, assurance is a, is a key thing in John's mind that, that strengthens the believer and leads us to righteousness and holy living and walking into the calling that God has for each of our lives. Assurance is fundamental, and our holiness is linked to the hope that we have in Christ, which motivates us to live differently. Assurance begets righteousness, and righteousness begets the capacity to love without fear. You see, love, as you've probably known as you read the Bible, is a central theme of all of John's writings. People have referred to him as the apostle of love. You may have thought it was American songwriter Barry White, but it's actually the apostle John. That was funnier in my mind than perhaps it landed. But, uh, but John tells us in our epistle here that God is love in chapter 4, verse 7. And so our life as followers of Jesus is all about love. If the goal of our discipleship is that Christ would be formed in us, that we become more and more like Jesus, then we need to become more and more like love. You see, God has revealed himself to us as those who bear his image, not so that we would simply grow in the intellectual understanding of our faith, not so that we would simply get our theology correct, not so that we would form our checklists of do's and don'ts that, that keep us comfortably within the guardrails of the practice of our faith. All those things are certainly important, to be sure. But God primarily has revealed himself so that we would grow in our capacity to both receive and to give love. In fact, it's the very goal of our discipleship that, that we would experience divine union with the triune God in love. You see, God is present and at work in our midst. We know this. The scriptures tell us he will never leave us or forsake us. Lo, I am with you always, Jesus tells the disciples as he gives them the great commission. God is present with us everywhere. His perfect love being the very source and center of our identity and status as true followers of Christ. And it's out of this center 
God's love for us, this love that had Jesus put on flesh and come to earth and die for our sins, it's this very love that forms the center. And out of this center becomes the expression of who we are in Christ. And the scriptures tell us that that our expressions of love is the truth of who we are. It's the proof. You will know them by their fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is foremost love. And out of that love flows all the other fruits. Love is the litmus test of who we are in Christ. When we accept Christ, this love, it starts out as our birth certificate. But God wants it to become our birthmark. And not the little insignificant birthmark that's behind your left knee or on your shoulder blade, but the one that's really obvious on your face. I'm talking like Mikhail Gorbachev-level birthmark. The one you can't take your eyes off of. Well, I think Phil Bryan, preaching a couple of weeks ago, mentioned about the research showing that, that there's an increasingly, an increasing segment of our society, rather, that, that love Jesus, they just don't love the church. Well, one thing worth noting is that these are people who, according to the research, who, who profess a commitment to an orthodox faith. They love Jesus. They believe in the scripture and most of the tenets of their Christian faith, but where they've lost faith is in the church. And what is it, we should ask ourselves, that ultimately is at the root of that problem? Well, for many of these people, it's wounding. It's, it's being hurt by people who are the last people that they would hope or expect to be hurt by. But it's also people who see a church and wonder, what is its purpose? We had a whole sermon series on being the church. I don't want to recover that ground. But for a lot of people, they're struggling to see, well, what what really is the purpose of the church? Well, I spent the majority of my adult life as an officer in the Marine Corps. Uh, Most of you know that. It it gets mentioned often out of my insecurity. Um, But did you know I was a Marine? Um, (laughs) And in the Marine Corps, and I think in all the military services, it's probably across the board, we we had a characterization that we would ascribe to things or processes from time to time. It was often issued as a critique or a warning. We would call something a a self-licking ice cream cone. I might have used this a few years ago. But an ice cream cone's very existence is, is to benefit the one that's consuming it, right? We eat an ice cream cone to satisfy our sweet tooth or to find relief from the heat or just to enjoy a great flavor. But a self-licking ice cream cone or as a process or an institution offers few benefits to those outside of it. And it exists primarily to justify or perpetuate its own existence. So the self-licking ice cream cone would seem to exist for its own enjoyment and no one else's. It doesn't sound very satisfying. And I don't offer this illustration to insult or to offend anyone or any group, and I'm certainly not leveling an accusation or a characterization here. But I am issuing this challenge to all of us, myself included, 
that we are being called to constantly examine our hearts and ask ourselves, are we, are we living unto ourselves or are we living unto and into the call on our lives that God has given us through and in Christ? You see, our fallen nature and the message of this world and the enemy of our souls is, is constantly working to turn us inward on ourselves. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves and ponder from time to time is, is the practice of our faith, whether that be individually, as individual Christians, or corporately as, as the body of Christ, is the existence of, of this church simply benefiting ourselves? Or is it also benefiting those around us? You know, as a church, as this church in particular, we're not facing the same crisis that John is addressing to these churches in Ephesus. There were particular secessionists who had a flawed theology that had left the churches, but were coming back and circling in and sowing seeds of doubt and discord and, and absolute untruth. We don't have secessionists that come into our fellowship and, and sow division and doubt and seeds of death by denying the divinity of Christ or by diminishing the gravity of sin and, and dispensing with the need for confession and repentance. I mean, we certainly have our idols and our besetting sins, but, but I think we have our theology in right order. We partake of it bodily every week at the table, and we confess it corporately every week as we've done this morning in our call to worship. If there's one thing that we can be confident in Trinity Fellowship has been faithful to devote itself to the apostles' teachings and the breaking of bread and the fellowship of the saints. We've planted churches. We partner with local ministries and we support foreign missionaries, some of whom we'll hear from this morning. We've trained pastors and leaders around the world. We've modeled belonging and serving and hospitality and generosity, and yet God continues to call this church and all of us who claim to be members of this fellowship to grow in our capacity to both receive and to give love. To posture ourselves as such that we remain in the Spirit and so love God completely. To posture ourselves in the Spirit to see ourselves and love ourselves correctly and to love others compassionately and self-sacrificially. Fearless love is the fruit of the light and the light in Christ. And John, at the end of this passage here, wants to assure his hearers, his readers, and, and us of that. I mean, it all sounds really straightforward, right? Hey, go, go love without fear but it becomes a lot harder at this point of contact of the reality, the com often complex and messy reality of our lives. John tells us in, in verse 13 that when we trust in Christ, we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life. But he goes on to say that the, the result is a, a boldness and a freedom that we should realize to love others through the 
persistent presence of Christ. John, as we've heard in previous sermons, he, he calls this abiding. Numerous times throughout this letter, we're exhorted to remain in him, to abide in him. I love how Dallas Willard characterizes the spiritual transformation process that comes about through abiding. He, he says it's to be pervasively possessed by Christ through continual companionship with him. One important result of the believer's assurance of eternal life, John tells us, is that he can have confidence and boldness in relation to God. He says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have before him. Like we should be confident that we can stand before God. He's told us earlier in the letter that part of our assurance is that we will not face condemnation on the day of judgment. This is the confidence that we have before him, that whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. One of the most important and transformative ways our confidence should manifest is through prayer. I think this is the one thing that John is admonishing and exhorting and commanding all of us to do with the information that he's given in this letter, is to pray. If you and I want to truly appropriate the capacity and the confidence to love without fear, then we need to change our hearts. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. You see, even as followers of Christ, and to, to, to the degree that we think we have God figured out, in some way, shape, or form, we have a distorted image of God. We don't see him truly as he is. We, we see, but we see him dimly, Paul says. We have this distorted image of God. We struggle to be fully present to ourselves and to relationships. We're, we're busy. We're distracted. We're disconnected. And oftentimes, friends, I, I lead the pack in that group. Hearts that are changed, friends, transform lives. And lives that are transformed change the world. And friends, our hearts cannot change without prayer. In his book, Earth and Altar, Eugene Peterson writes this about prayer. He says, prayer is the action that gets us in touch with and develops the most comprehensive relationships. Self, God, community, creation, government, culture. He says, in prayer and only in prayer are we able to enter the complexity and depth of the dynamic and interrelated whole. A failure to pray, he says, is not a harmless omission. It is a violation of both self and the community. If there is one main thing, friends, that John wants us to do as a result of this letter, it's to walk with confident assurance in our place in Christ and to pray. And what confidence does he want us to have about prayer? We read it in verse 14. He says the confidence that we should have is, is both to approach God and present our requests. In the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the author writes that because Jesus is our high priest, he knows our 
temptations and understands our weaknesses, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And John is telling us the same thing. He's telling us we can ask anything of God. And he assures us that when we ask according to his will, he hears us. And he gives us further confidence in in verse 15. He says, and if we know that he hears us in regard to whatever we ask, then we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. We can know, friends, that with God, when God hears, God answers. Confidence we have in the day of judgment. Confidence we have that he hears our prayers. Confident that God answers prayers. But John also gives us a caveat that God answers those prayers that are in accordance with his will. Sometimes our desires are not what God desires for us, as hard as oftentimes that is for us to accept. But if we believe in the perfect goodness and the steadfast and loyal love of God, I hope that that sustains us to endure unanswered prayer or answers that aren't the answers that we were seeking after, that we can stand in the goodness of God all the while presenting our request to him. Sometimes what we want is not what our heavenly father wants for us. Perhaps our prayers are too myopic, too short-sighted, too self-focused. The prayers that we utter should not be an attempt to get God to see things our way or to extract from him what we have decided that we need or want because the scriptures tell us God knows what we need before we ask. He still wants us to ask, but he knows what we need and he provides. The secret of prevailing prayer is to align our own will with God's. And John reminds us of that us of that here. John Stott says every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. It's opening the door of our need to the Lord Jesus. And this means that that prayer is, is God's means by which our submission to Christ's lordship can be developed. You see, the less we pray, the more self-willed we become. Like the Lord taught the disciples to pray, what we should be praying is something like this. These are not my words, but it's a a quote that I appreciated. He says, Lord, may your will be done in me, this little bit of earth, for we are but dust, we're reminded of in this Lenten season. But as it is in Christ, who is my heaven, this is a prayer to appeal that, that God, through his spirit, through his indwelling spirit and our spending time with God in prayer, that he would transform us more and more into the likeness of his son. And so I'm convicted, I am struck, that this idea of aligning my will with God's probably has as much or more to do with listening and discerning as it does asking. In my prayer life, I'm really good at asking God for things. I'm really good at telling God about the things that I worry about, the things I need from him. 
but I'm not so good at, at posturing myself before him in a quiet and attentive way to hear and discern what it is that God wants to reveal to me about his heart and his character and my heart and my character. So I think that we would all do well to do more listening and discerning as much as asking. Oswald Chambers says, the greatest answer to prayer is that I'm brought into a perfect understanding with God and that alters my view of actual things. And we have the scriptures that can guide and inform our prayer life. The scriptures are full of the prayers of disciples and, and the saints who've gone before us. We have an entire prayer book of the Psalms and, and others. We can use those to guide and inform our prayer life. How better to avail ourselves of the transforming power of God's Spirit than to pray His words to Him. We should pray for the things the saints pray for. We should pray in the way that the saints pray. And as I've said, the, the great importance of a need to spend time in solitude and silence to reflect and listen To pray is the most important and effective thing we could ever do for ourselves as Christians. But John, in this passage, adds a layer to that. He tells us that there is a, also an important communal responsibility to love one another through prayer. In the first part of verse 16, he says, If anyone sees his fellow Christian committing a sin not resulting in death, he should ask, and God will grant life to the person who commits a sin not resulting in death. You see, we, we, in our fallen nature, we hide our sins from ourselves. We justify them away, oftentimes. We, hide the, we try to hide them from God, and we're reluctant to share them responsibly with a trusted community of fellow believers who can pray for us. But as we find in the very first chapters of Genesis that, that sins, sin brings an awareness of our nakedness, of our vulnerability, and of our need for God. I don't know if you've seen on the Discovery Channel, there's a series, it's in its 15th season of all things, it's called Naked and Afraid where the, the, the premise is, is a man and a woman are placed into some remote environment with no clothes, just a, a satchel to strategically provide a fig leaf, and, um, and they are trying to survive for 21 days. Um, I don't know how much of the fear part enters in. There's a whole camera crew with them all the time who's able to step in and rescue them from any perils. But just the idea of being out there with no shoes on stresses me out. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, did you all know I was a Marine? Um, <laughs> I used to say, look, if, if I'm ever captured by the enemy, if they take my boots, I'm, I'm going nowhere. I'm done. My, my wife ridicules, not doesn't ridicule, she likes to poke fun at me that I, I can't walk in my bare feet. But I think what John is calling us to here is to be naked and unafraid. Throughout his letter, John has called us to be aware of our sin. 
He says, whoever says he's without sin deceives himself or herself, and the truth is not in them. John is calling out sin throughout this letter, but John is also telling us to to bring our sin to God in confession and to, to bring our sin, again, in an appropriate way to one another so that the saints can intercede for one another and pray for a sinning brother and sister. John is calling us to be naked and unafraid in our prayer life. And what does John say that will be the result? He says that God will grant life. God will grant life. Do you walk around as a Christian thinking I'm saving lives through my prayer life? I mean, I, I don't. Um, but in our society, we venerate those who save and protect lives. We honor those who give themselves to serve and protect lover, others, rather, right? I mean, we can save lives through prayer. That's a pretty high calling, friends. In the second half of that verse, he, John's not prohibiting praying for those who are persisting in, in sin or unbelievers. He simply isn't commanding it. I got a bit of my head of myself there. He says, um, he says uh, God will grant life to the person who commits a sin not resulting in death. There is a sin resulting in death, and I'm going to come to that in just a minute. I do not say that he should ask about that. John isn't prohibiting prayer for those who are committing sin that leads unto death. He's simply not commanding it, is the view of, of the scholars. But here we encounter this interpretive challenge, right? Before the service started, Bob Kerstetter came up to me and said, what is the sin that leads to death? Well, the interpretive challenge here is, is, is it's not really clear. One approach is to explain it in the terms of the Old Testament distinction between sins that are committed unintentionally and sins that are committed defiantly in obedience to the law, right? The Old Testament calls these sins of the high hand or high-handed sins. This defiant disobedience to the law of people who should know better. Another approach involves identifying the sin that leads to death with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. And a third approach identifies the sin that leads to death with what are regarded as, as particularly heinous offenses like adultery, murder, idolatry, apostasy. The Catholic Church, you may know, has mortal sins, sins that lead unto death, and venial sins, lesser sins. So that, that third approach sort of it's there. But I think in John, in the context of his letters, what John is saying is that the, the sin that leads to death is a, a deliberate rejection of known truth, specifically rejecting Jesus as the Christ and refusing to love one's brothers and sisters as evidence that one is already in a state of spiritual death. When the author here speaks of a sin that leads to death, he's He's referring to this eventual outcome of such a persistent sin of the unbeliever. In the context of this letter, believers can't commit sins which lead to death because we believe, believers believe that who Jesus is. The secessionists, the heretics, sowing discord in John's church, didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed he was. 
that he wasn't fully God and fully man. That salvation came through some secret knowledge that was appropriated by a select few. John says believers cannot commit sins which lead to death. It's the brother or sister whose sin is not unto death for whom we're urged to pray. So the suggestion here is that the sin that does not lead to death is the sin of the believer because throughout this letter, John has told us we still sin as believers. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, in verse 18, he reiterates something that he said earlier in chapter 3 of his letter. He says, we know here in chapter 5, verse 18, we know that everyone fathered by God does not sin, but God protects the one he has fathered. John is reiterating that as believers, yes, we are going to, from time to time, commit sins. And yes, we're called to confess and repent of those sins. But those sins will not lead us to death unless we persist in this life of sin. Well, in these final four verses of our passage, John places this closing emphasis on, on some of the great assurances that he's already expounded elsewhere in the letter. He's highlighting true knowledge here for the believer. Each of these verses, 18, 19, and 20, all start with this phrase, we know. John is reiterating things that he's already told his hearers. He says the true knowledge is this, that Christians don't persist in a life of sin. We don't go on sinning. Yes, we sin. Yes, we continually need to seek God's forgiveness. But he also says that God's keep, God keeps Christians safe from the evil one. That the world is in the hands of the evil one, but believers are in the hands of God. And Christians know that they belong to God and not to this world. And we know the true God in Jesus Christ. Well, John abruptly ends his letter in verse 21 with a, with a final warning to guard ourselves from idols. An idol is, is anything that occupies the place due to God in our hearts. It's, a, it's an imitation or a substitute rather than the reality. As we read the Old Testament and, and we come across this word and we think idols, we, our mind is drawn to things that are carved out of wood and stone or fashioned out of precious metal. But that's not what God, John has in mind here. He's talking about idols that are the, the false ideas and the heretical concepts of God to which his church was being subjected. He says, guard yourselves, little ones. Children of God, guard yourselves from idols. But as foreign as this idea of guarding ourselves from idols might seem to us today, it's, it's no less appropriate for us here. Idolatry, idolatry rather, today looks like, like people living for what they have and, and what they can acquire. In its more sophisticated forms, materialism becomes a quest for power and social status, success, and fame. The world is full of self-made people who worship their creator 
themselves. And the church is not immune to these same temptations. I want to draw to a close here with a quote from, from Pastor David Jackman, who, who talks about idolatry in the church. He says, in our century too, it is the false ideas of God, cardboard cutout substitutes for the living and true God, that invade and destroy our spiritual lives. Whether it's the demythologized God shorn of his supernatural power or the pocket-sized God of evangelical overfamiliarity deprived of his majesty, he says the danger is the same. He says we can all too easily think we have him sewn up, that we know all about him. We can predict his responses and even condition them. But what we have is not God. It is an idol of our own making, a thinly veiled excuse for worshiping ourselves. Friends, the, the danger that you and I are always susceptible to is, is this turning inward on ourselves, focusing on the things that, that make us comfortable, focusing on the things that, that remove all chance of fear, removing risk. But what John is telling us in this last verse of his letter is that don't let anything be more attractive to you and I than God. Anything that pushes God toward the margins of our lives must be ruthlessly toppled. We have eternal life in Christ, friends. And we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence in prayer. Placing our own hearts before the Lord and praying for the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we reject any notion of God which contradicts the perfect self-revelation in Jesus Christ. So that we may experience this divine union with God in love. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, we give you great thanks for your son, Jesus, and the assurance that we have by your own testimony, God, by your spirit, by the water of baptism and the blood of crucifixion that proclaims Jesus as the Savior of the world. And so, Father, I pray that, that we could appropriate for ourselves that steadfast assurance to know that, that we are safe in your hands. That you're calling us to a place of obedience and trust and submission and dependence in such a way, Lord, that you can transform us into who it is that you would have us to be. And God, that even the assurance that your kingdom program, your plan... The plan for your church does not depend on our efforts. It does not depend on anything that we do, Lord, but that, as we heard last week in, in Pastor Mike's sermon, that, that, that we have victory in Christ, Lord, that, that you have conquered sin and death, and we too are conquerors. I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our capacity to come to you confidently in prayer, Yes, to present to you our needs and our desires, but Lord, I pray also that we would spend time before you in a posture of submission and listening to discern 
what it is that you want to reveal to us more about you and more about ourselves, God, that we could bring them into greater alignment for your glory. Give us the wisdom to discern truth from lies, God. Give us the confidence, Lord, to love like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us stand together. My